ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is Rear Vision. I'm Jennifer Leake. Very few have worked at all and nearly all have been pulled off the market at some point for their side effect profile or just difficult to tolerate. So really there have been no real success stories. Drug treatments for weight loss have ranged from ineffective or temporary to downright dangerous. But a new class of drugs intended to treat type 2 diabetes are being touted as a revolution in weight loss. Some of the drugs in late-stage development, nearly 30% weight loss, and that's a remarkable amount of weight to help a patient lose. This is really the first major weight loss drug in the age of social media. This could radically reshape the way that we interact with one another, the way we socialize. You know, if you imagine a future in which these drugs are, are extremely widespread. The active ingredient in Ozempic is semaglutide, which works by mimicking the role of a naturally occurring hormone called GLP-1. The drug acts on appetite centres in the brain, reducing hunger and promoting a sense of fullness. For people struggling with chronic obesity and related health problems, it could have profound benefits. This class of drugs is a real game changer in this space. And it's really changed the way I think we're viewing obesity as a chronic disease. There should be treatments offered to people and those treatments should be available and they should be available lifelong. But the desire and market potential for weight loss drugs have always extended far beyond the people that might medically need them. So as we enter a new era of weight loss medications, this week we're looking back on some of the most infamous diet drugs of the past. Their social and cultural impact and how the allure of a quick fix has been pursued by drug companies since the early 20th century. All of the the diet pill, the obesity drugs that I looked at, you know, over the 20th century, they do persist for a really long time, even after there is pretty good evidence to show that they are either not effective or they are dangerous. Around 60% of the Australian population is considered obese or overweight. And we generally think of obesity as a modern public health issue. But the notion that being overweight was a medical issue that could be fixed by drugs emerged in the early 1900s. And the reason why they started getting concerned about it then was because there was a new field in medicine that was really exploding at the time. It was like the way genetics is nowadays, like the very exciting new modern thing. And in 1910, that exciting new modern thing was endocrinology, the study of the glands in the body, things like the pituitary gland, the thyroid gland, the renal gland. And one of the things that happens when glands are disordered is that the shape and the growth of your body uh, is distorted. So, for example, gigantism is the result of an overfunctioning pituitary gland. This is Laura Dawes. She specialises in the history of modern medicine and she's the author of Childhood Obesity in America, Biography of an Epidemic. 
they also thought that it wasn't really possible for a child's appetite to be really distorted, that children were young, they were pure, they were unsullied. They just hadn't had that whole life experience that would distort those natural instincts of, you know, when you had to eat and when you had to stop eating. So they didn't think it was possible that a child could really overeat. Overweight children started getting treated with gland extract from animals. A combination of therapies using both thyroid and pituitary glands or more exotic gland cocktails like ovarian extracts for girls or testicular extracts for boys. This was also being driven by drug companies who saw a very lucrative new market for developing these kinds of things and the meatpacking companies too. These are the abattoirs. The animal glands would just have been you know, ground up and used as fertiliser, so really kind of low-grade applications. But if you used them instead as a drug, animal glands were worth a lot more. So the meat packing companies at this time were setting up all these kind of subsidiary companies who would be essentially drug companies. Adults were also being treated with gland extracts. This same idea that maybe there was a gland problem, perhaps your glands were a bit sluggish if you were a bit overweight, that also applied in adulthood as well. And look, you will lose weight if you are being injected with thyroid extract. It just will happen. It's not necessarily because your thyroid is not working, but what will be happening is that you're being poisoned. These kind of therapies came with significant risks and potential side effects. Heart palpitations, increased blood pressure, tremors, even anxiety. And by the 1930s, they started to test the metabolic rate of overweight children. They were found to be normal or even higher than average. Thyroid hormone began to be seen as an inappropriate treatment for children, but it continued as an adult slimming therapy for decades. Throughout history, breakthrough treatments for weight loss have come with psychological and social impacts. The use of amphetamines, which began in the mid-1930s, is a striking example. So there were kind of three theories floating around at the time about how amphetamines might actually be effective. One is the idea that in the brain there is a hunger centre, and this is generally considered to be the hypothalamus, it's a little organ within the brain. And that the idea was that this hunger centre would signal the rest of the body and tell other components, well, we're hungry, so let's eat. Or we've eaten too much, so let's store some of this as fat. Maybe what amphetamines were doing were affecting this hunger centre, either shutting it down in some way or uh, affecting the way that it sort of spoke to the rest of the body. Very strikingly, if you injected a dog with amphetamines, very large dose of amphetamines, that dog would rather starve than start eating. So its hunger centre had been completely shut down. It did not know it needed to eat. Theories number two and three thought that, well, maybe it wasn't a, a necessarily a physical action, but it was something, it was to do with the mental effects. Now, amphetamine is, it's an upper. It gives you a great sense of lift and pep. And so the first theory was that maybe a fat person was actually very unhappy. Perhaps fat people were 
getting comfort and, and uh, you know, maybe a sense of pleasure and satisfaction from eating. And so what amphetamines might do would give you a sense of pep and uplift and joy, and therefore you didn't have to find pleasure through eating. Moving into the 1950s, and we see the arrival of so-called rainbow pills, which refers to a group of amphetamine-based appetite suppressants that were prescribed overwhelmingly to women at special walk-in clinics. They would typically contain thyroid. They would tend to have other drugs added to counteract the unpleasant and dangerous effects of the thyroid, such as digitalis would be in there. To counteract the edgy, unpleasant effects of amphetamine, they would add barbiturates uh, to, to the pills. Sometimes it'd be a co- you know, combination of all four of those things. Nicholas Rasmussen is a historian of science and author of On Speed, from Benzedrine to Adderall. They were tended to be dispensed by specialists in weight loss, physicians, you know, fat doctors. They were called insultingly by their, uh, their medical colleagues or bariatric practitioners, they would sometimes call themselves. They would typically dispense these drugs dis- directly. In other words, you'd go to the physician's office saying, I want to lose weight. The doctor would say, oh, you have a, you know, a disordered metabolism and um, I'm going to give you this very special formula for you that'll be $10, you know, I think $100 in today's money. They would be sold directly to the patient by the physician's office, not, not via a pharmacist. It was becoming increasingly clear that prolonged use of amphetamines led to dependence, addiction and the potential for serious cardiovascular problems. And the weight loss clinics that dispense these rainbow pills came under closer scrutiny as well. Fat doctors um, were rife, these weight loss salons and, and practices. Some of them were independent. Some of them were actually part of chains. Most of them were supplied by a handful of companies that specialize in it, offering a, a wide range of the amphetamine thyroid pills in different colors and slightly different formulations, some with more barbiturate sedatives, some with less. Uh, so there was a bit of an uproar about this business. You know, they, uh, there was, it was coming from several angles in the, in the mid to late 60s. There's the feminist angle. So Susan McBee was motivated uh, to sort of go undercover. Susanna McBee was a reporter for Life magazine who went undercover to expose the industry. An average size woman, she went to see 10 doctors and all gave her scripts for diet pills. The drugs she received comprised of amphetamines, barbiturates, diuretics, even sex hormones. But the doctors didn't actually tell her that. And there had been a couple of spectacular deaths of, of people right before Susan McBee um, you know, went, went undercover to, to do this. Uh, one or two women who were actually rather thin had gone to lose weight at some of these these fat doctors and been given the usual you know diagnosis of obesity and you know a, a lot of amphetamine pills and then died. So she was kind of following up on that scandal um, about sort of you know drugging um, women to take advantage of their body insecurities. But there was also a general movement against amphetamine going on. And the other thing that happened in the early 1970s was that Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs. This was a huge program that the U.S. was really driving, but they were implementing it all around the world, um, which was really trying to squash the drug trade and drug usage. Mm. And so the... The general idea that it might be okay to take a pill for diet purposes started to hmm, look a little bit dodgy with this idea of the war on drugs. Amphetamines became a controlled substance in the US in 1970. In Australia, it was 1965. 
But many diet drugs today contain ingredients that are in the same class as amphetamines, but they face much stricter regulations and prescriptions are monitored. Fentamin, and you're going to hear more on this drug shortly, is still sold in Australia under the brand name Duramine. And until recently, it was one of the most widely prescribed weight loss drugs. I'm Michael Cowley. I'm a professor of medicine at Monash University and I'm head of the Department of Physiology at Monash University. And I have a a friend in California whose job was to investigate and pull the licenses of of, of doctors who are over-prescribing fentanyl. It's a very seasonal drug. People tend to regard it as a swimsuit season drug to lose a little bit of weight. People tend to like it because it's quite activating. I mean, it's, it is in the same class of drug as amphetamine. It's nowhere near as potent as amphetamine and has not been associated with any of the cardiovascular liability that amphetamine is. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Jennifer Leake. This week, diet pills. The search for a miracle drug and the risks people are willing to take to get it. Fenfen was an infamous combination of diet drugs which emerged in the 1990s and was prescribed off-label. So the label refers to what the sponsor, the company, and the regulator, the TGA or the FDA, have agreed the drug is for. So, for example, we agree that semaglutide at the 1.2 milligram dose branded Ozempic, is for the treatment of diabetes. That's its label. But a doctor has the right to prescribe whatever they like for the benefit of their patient. That's off-label prescribing. Drugs are prescribed on-label and off-label. And off-label usage hasn't been tested for safety or efficacy. So we don't know how safe it is. We don't know how effective it is. Fenfen is a combination of fenfluramine and fentamine, two drugs. And it was widely used and widely prescribed, the combination was widely prescribed in, in the States in particular. And it was said to cause dramatic weight loss, 15, 20, 25% weight loss. But it was never evaluated in a clinical study. So it was just a home-cooked combination that doctors began to prescribe. Despite not being approved by the FDA, Fenfen was seen as a miracle diet drug and started getting prescribed in huge numbers. I just finished my residency training and the first job I took was a summer job covering a family practice in Long Island in a a fairly well-to-do area. Danielle Offrey is a primary care doctor at Bellevue Public Hospital in New York. She's reflecting on a patient she saw in 1996. You know, it was a family practice, so lots of just regular aches and pains and rashes and bug bites. But then a woman came in, she was in her early to mid-40s, asking for me to prescribe for her uh, Fenfen. It was all in the news and advertising. Now, when I looked at her, she didn't look overweight. Part of it seemed a little frivolous, I will have to say, and I wonder maybe, did she have an eating disorder? She basically said, you know, I've taken this before, I just need you to prescribe it. Like, I don't need you to talk to me about weight loss or anything, just prescribe the medication for me. So I was a little put off by that as well. It didn't make sense for me. I did not feel comfortable just prescribing a medication that I wasn't comfortable with, that I didn't see the indication for, and I declined. And she was very angry and she walked out. That was it. And then literally one month later came the article about the uh, heart valve abnormalities that come with this medication. It was quickly uh, drawn off the market. 
it became very popular and people made money co-prescribing them and, and running clinics to provide prescriptions for, for fentamine and fenfluramine. And it took quite a while for the side effect, cardiovascular side effect, to be discovered. But when combined with fentamine, it caused damage to the mitral valves of the heart, which caused pulmonary hypertension, which is catastrophic in some patients. Mm. And it took many, many years for the cases to become evident. And it, I mean, it destroyed lives. Something else was happening in the 1990s. Doctors started to look at genetics as a solution to obesity. Here's medical historian Laura Dawes. In 1991, a team of geneticists at Rockefeller University in New York, they seem to have kind of cracked it. They had been looking at um, a particular type of mouse, a mouse that had a genetic mutation. And this mouse would grow extremely fat. I mean, hugely fat, five times the size of a normal mouse. And they had discovered that it had a mutation in a gene on the sixth chromosome that they called the ob gene. And they called it that because it was the obese gene. And this mouse had two recessive copies of that mutation. And what it meant was that its ob gene was not doing what an ob gene ought to do in a normal mouse, which is making a protein that is made by the fat and circulates through the blood. So what Friedman concluded was that this ob gene in the body's fat stores was sending out this protein and that was the signal that went up to the hypothalamus mm. and told the hypothalamus what was happening. That was you know, really sort of powerful support for the lipostatic theory, that it was a signaling mechanism um, from this ob gene uh, that was talking to the hypothalamus. And they called the hormone, the protein that the ob gene made, leptin. The team then artificially created leptin and injected it into the obese mice who couldn't make their own. And it made them lose a lot of weight. And what made this discovery so thrilling, humans have an OB gene as well. The huge, huge excitement was that, oh my goodness, maybe obesity in humans is caused by a mutation in that OB gene in the same way that it's caused in those mice. Right. And this was just so incredibly exciting that a drug company offered to buy the patent for making leptin from Friedman and his team um, for an absolutely vast amount of money. I mean, you have to understand, this was in 1995, and you have to understand that normally if a drug company wants to buy a bit of experimental research, they'll pay around about $30,000. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit, it's not a crazy amount. What the pharmaceutical company Amgen offered Friedman was $20 million. Wow, in the 90s, that's yeah. a lot of money. In the 90s, it's a lot yeah. of money, and that was only going to be the first of a number of payments as well. The drug company saw a massive global opportunity if it turned out that leptin was the secret to curing obesity. Unfortunately, that doesn't really happen in humans. First of all, the one problem is that ob gene mutations in humans are incredibly rare, like super, super rare. Um, it took years to even find a person who had a mutation in their ob gene. And the first people to be found with that were um, two children in a family that the children were 
cousins of each other, even though they were also brother and sister, and their parents were also cousins as well. So, I mean, in medical parlance, that's called being highly consanguineous. And in lay people's terms, it's called being inbred. So, yeah, most most of these people do not have an obgene mutation. It's incredibly rare. There have been some big changes over the last few decades. For one, regulation and oversight when new drugs come to market has improved a lot. The drugs we're dealing with now have been in trials involving many thousands of people for, in some cases, two or three years. So we have a much better understanding of the benefit and risk profile of these drugs, whereas older drugs were subject to shorter trials and smaller trials. So you can imagine if something has a rare side effect and you test it on three people, you're very unlikely to detect that rare side effect. But if Mm. you test it on 10,000 people, statistically you have better odds of finding that rare side effect. So regulators have become better at helping us interpret the effects of drugs, both the the, the beneficial effects and and the the not beneficial, the, the side effects. We also have a much better understanding of how appetite is regulated. Samantha Hocking is a clinical academic endocrinologist at the University of Sydney. I principally work in the area of uh, weight management at the at Royal Prince Albert Hospital, and I also uh, work in private practice um, as an endocrinologist, but I also do weight management in my private practice. Treatments that were targeting obesity were trying to, say, increase metabolic rate, and that is inherently potentially problematic because, you know, if you're you're increasing heart rate or you're increasing blood pressure, I mean, these things could have adverse outcomes. The serotonin system that was targeted before that had the heart valve abnormalities, you know, we're not targeting that system anymore with these drugs. We're looking at a different system that regulates appetite. So I think there's just been um, more discovery around how appetite is regulated There's been the identification of new pathways that can be targeted. These have then been safer than the pathways that have been targeted before. And so the medications that are coming onto the market now have just a much higher degree of safety. But as has been the case with every diet drug, if you stop taking it, the weight is likely to come back. Johnny is in his 40s. A few years ago, he was prescribed an appetite suppressant while recovering from an injury. What my appetite didn't know is that I wasn't training. My discipline only goes so far and my willpower only goes so far. So I approached my GP whilst arm in a sling and I said, look, this is my situation. I'm wondering if you can provide me with an appetite suppressant just whilst I go through this process of, of rehab. And he obliged and provided me with a script for a diet pill. So I went about taking this diet pill And almost immediately, you could see the effects. Yes, your appetite is suppressed. But I basically felt like I was taking, you know, some kind of party drug half the time. My heart rate was racing. Mm. My brain was racing. But it also affects your mental psyche as well. Actually, one of the things the GP said to me, you can't take this long term. This is only a short term fix. But he also said, so it was about a month, provided me with one script for a month. But he also said to me, most likely... Whatever weight you lose whilst you're on it, you will put back on as soon as you go off it. He basically said it's a yo-yo effect. And this new class of drugs face a similar challenge. Stop taking semaglutide and the weight can return. 
These drugs are yet to be widely prescribed in Australia. But observing what's happened in the United States could offer some insight into their impact. Matthew Schneier is a features writer for New York magazine. He did a story on the rise of Ozempic earlier this year. The woman that I opened my piece with, who we call Alison, is an actress, and she is someone who has always been relatively thin, you know, uh, certainly not someone who meets the clinical definition of, of obesity or even overweight, but who partially because of her own anxieties around food and body and partially because of her career, you know, really wanted to be smaller than she was and and was suffering from um, a real anxiety that she was not smaller than she was. And for her, she did not have a problem taking it off label. She did not have a problem getting it from um, a prescriber that she had not met. You know, she didn't ask a ton of questions about this person's qualifications or about where the drugs were coming from. She, you know, knew what she wanted. She found a way to get it. She paid for it out of pocket. And so far, she has had a generally good experience. And I think that's something you see a lot with these drugs, especially as they become talking points in in culture and pop culture. People are seeking them out for themselves and cases where they can't or are unwilling to to get their own doctors to prescribe them are finding black market ways to take and use these drugs themselves. This is really the first major weight loss drug in the age of social media. This could radically reshape the way that we interact with one another, the way oh. we socialize. You know, if you imagine a future in which these drugs are, are extremely widespread, to me, what this suggests is that our, our whole body positivity movement is a little bit more rickety than than we might like to admit as far as we've come in, in terms of recognizing the potential harms of these restrictive body standards, medically, psychologically, culturally. Many people still seem to feel like, you know, I want to be on the side of right and I want to be inclusive and I want to support people of all body types. I just don't necessarily want that body type for myself. Or, or at least if I have the opportunity to lose five or 10 or 20 pounds, I'm going to jump at it, whether I am a good candidate for this medication or not. There's a risk that using these drugs will reduce your metabolic rate in the long term. And the other negative impact is loss of lean mass. There's varied data out there, but I think the consensus is that patients who use either semaglutide or tazepatide, the the newer, even more supercharged version, can lose up to 25% of their weight as lean mass. That's bone and muscle. And if you're losing muscle at a 50-year-old, you're unlikely to put it back on when you stop taking the drug. The weight you regain is most likely to be adipose tissue or fat. And so if you have three or four bouts of this, does that leave you with a whole lot less bone and muscle than you began with? And we don't know the answer to that question. I think that's where the, the insidious price will be. These drugs have huge potential for patients wanting to treat chronic obesity. But will they be accessible to the people who really need it? I think we've also got to remember what the definition of obesity is, and that's an excess accumulation of adipose tissue that can lead to an impairment of health. And it is true that some people can live in a larger body and be very fit and active and healthy. So those people, by definition, don't have obesity because it's not leading to an impairment of their health. And if they're happy and healthy in that body, great. 
But those people who do have excess adipose tissue that's leading to health problems, then I think these treatments are really great for them. So my concern is that these medications will become available. Because they're peptide medications that take a lot of research and development, they're expensive when they first come to market. And therefore, those who are most likely to be able to afford them are not necessarily those people who are most likely to need them. So I unfortunately can see a future where there's anti-obesity medications that are available to the wealthy and they're out of the financial grasp of people who are not wealthy. And I think that's really sad. Dr. Samantha Hocking is a clinical academic endocrinologist at the University of Sydney. Dr. Michael Cowley, Professor of Medicine and Head of the Department of Physiology at Monash University. Also in the program, Laura Dawes, the author of Childhood Obesity in America, Biography of an Epidemic. Dr. Danielle Offrey is a primary care doctor at Bellevue Hospital in New York. Nicholas Rasmussen is the author of On Speed, From Benzedrine to Adderall. And Matthew Schneier is a features writer for New York magazine. This week's Rear Vision was produced by me, Jennifer Leake, and thanks also to sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.